0: Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 4, where we pick up this morning where we left off last Lord's Day as we began looking together at the narrative of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. John chapter 4 this morning, we'll begin reading once again at verse 1. John writes, And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. Just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food. Is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to you today with the same needs as this Samaritan woman and the people of Samaria, to know and to believe that you are the Christ and to build our lives upon you. Father, for many of us here in this room, we, we have a, a knowledge of these things, but application them becomes difficult. Would you send your spirit to teach us of the Christ, to teach us of his fullness, his beauty, his majesty, his sufficiency, that any weaknesses we perceive because of unbelief in us, Father, that those would be demolished, Because of the pictures of Christ that are on display here. And Father, for the unbeliever in our midst. Father, we pray that not because of what the Samaritan woman said or because of something I say. It's not because of us that that person would come to believe. But it would be because of you and the work of your spirit removing the scales that blind us to beholding your glory. And would you glorify yourself in the salvation that comes to us through so great a Savior that we've been singing about this morning, that Paul preached about in Antioch this morning. The Savior has come. He is all. Father, for all of us, help our unbelief. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Well, again, we began looking at this text last Lord's Day. Uh, Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. One of the fundamental things I think it's important for us to have in mind and to talk about as we look at this narrative is to be reminded that this story is not ultimately about the Samaritan woman. That this portrait here, this narrative has to everything to do with Jesus. And we draw that straight from John chapter 20 where John himself writes. that There were many other stories about Jesus. There were many other th- miracles that Jesus did. But these collection of stories and things that I have written about in John chapter 1 through the end of the book, these are written, these have been specifically targeted and chosen so that you might believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ and then live your life upon that belief. And so every story is going back to that. The ultimate purpose is to show us more and more of the glory of Christ, to show us His fullness, His beauty, His majesty, who the Father sent Him to be and what the Father sent Him to do. And so we'll have to guard this morning, even as we talked about quite extensively last Lord's Day, any secondary understanding of this story, which may not be a wrong understanding of it. You can certainly make further applications than this, but those further applications must be wrapped in this picture of who Christ is. The story of Jesus' interaction with the woman of Samaria does, as John said in John chapter 20, seem to be, it seems to have been chosen very carefully. It seems to have been placed very strategically, sovereignly, we could go so far as to say. Because as John is moving along in his gospel, he's already laid out some incredible realities, right? Going back to John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning uh, was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, he was in the beginning with God, and from there he begins in eternity past and just begins to unfold who Christ is. To know Christ, you've got to begin back there. Any understanding of Christ that doesn't include that is an idol, it's not Christ, you need to repent. Christ is this fullness. He's He's uh, no boundaries, no time boundaries. He's eternal. So you've got to begin there. And then throughout John's gospel, he's, just, he's heaping upon us new revelation or clearer revelation of who Jesus is in his life and in his ministry. And so for now, over the course of three chapters, John has laid out some magnificent truths about Jesus. So we come to chapter 4 this morning. And the first thing we, we want to ask is, how does this fit in with everything that's come before it? How does it fit in with what John sets his purpose in writing in John chapter 20 is? So when you do that, immediately you can kind of remove the Samaritan woman from the, from the central focus. Now, she's important to the story, but she's not the central focus. So now we can begin to hone in upon Jesus, focusing upon his actions, focusing upon his words. Focusing upon his response to the Samaritan woman as they go along. And by doing so, there's certain themes that begin to rise to the surface. Familiar themes. Things that John has already told us about. But now all of a sudden we're seeing them in bodily form. And it appears that this particular episode in Jesus' life was chosen. To serve up this purpose. To take some of those broad themes that, Jesus, uh, that John has already explained about Jesus in John 1, 2, and 3. And to kind of illustrate, if you will. And here's what they look like when he lived among us. In his public ministry, these are the truths. And now here's how they were actually true of Jesus. It's almost as though John is saying, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. I've told you who Jesus is, now let me show you. Here's what I saw. Here's how those things were a reality in his daily life. And the purpose of this, that we would believe. And that we would live our life upon Christ, the all in all. Find our hope, our healing, our joy, our forgiveness, everything in Christ alone. So, reading through this uh, narrative, if you will, of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, there are numerous themes that it looks like John is illustrating, that he's already talked about. And among these are a few that we're going to look at this morning and next Lord's Day. Things like this, John has already told us, through the words of John the Baptist, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, in this narrative, we're going to see in his own life, he's living out. He is the Savior of the world. A second theme has been water in John chapters 1, 2, and 3. Even in the words to Nicodemus, right, you must be saved by spirit and water. And here, it's unmistakable. Jesus is the living water. He brings living water. Through him is the water. He's showing the illustration of it. In John chapter 1, Jesus is the light of the world. I'm not just simply talking about a big bright light. A light shining into darkness. And there's no darker darkness than the human soul blacker than the blackest night. The human soul is dead and dark. But Christ is the light. In the story of the Samaritan woman, we're going to see Jesus as the light who drives away the darkness in a woman and a people who know nothing but darkness. We've seen Jesus referenced as the true temple. I think not accidentally, Although it appears to be accidentally when we read it, the Samaritan woman is going to try to change the subject on Jesus. Start talking about worship, about the temple. It's not by accident that's placed where it is, where John has already referenced Jesus as the true temple. Jesus is referenced as the Messiah. In this story, it's unmistakable. Jesus comes and he himself not only presents himself as the Messiah, he embodies it. He lives it out in that encounter. And then sixthly, the theme that he talks about, the fields are white with harvest. There's a familiar theme that John has already talked about in the previous chapters, that Christ came for the purpose of gathering a harvest for the glory of God. As we look at the story, this it's not, Well, it's interesting he added this here. It, it really does fit together. It's everything he's already said. But he wants us to so believe it, not just because he said it and John's a smart guy, but because with the eyes of faith, we have watched and seen what he saw in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so let's begin looking at a few of these together this morning. Number one, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Consider, first of all, The way this story, this encounter with the Samaritan woman illustrates what John has been saying all the way back to chapter 1, that Jesus was and is the Savior of the world. That the Father sent the Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. World there, not necessarily just specifically uh, the people of the world, a lot of people, but the world in John's gospel is a world in rebellion to God, an entity, a sphere, a place that is in enmity with God, at hatred with God, rebelling against God, God so loved this place that hated him that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. There's a, he's a Savior. He's sending a Savior in. And that's just one of the instances where John has already begun to communicate that Jesus was sent by the Father to be a Savior into a world that hates him to save Jews and Gentiles and mixed breeds, which is exactly what Samaritans were. Fallen people, people from every tribe, tongue, and language who can't stand God, who have no interest in God, who want God dead. People from everywhere in this world that hates God, God sent his son as a lamb to take away their sin. That truth has been stated over and over in John chapter 1, 2, and 3. And now we're told in this narrative, we we looked at verses 1 through 5 or 6 last Lord's Day, that ultimately Jesus departs Judea to go to Galilee. But there's a little bit of an issue, right? So you've got Judea down here to the south. You've got Galilee up here to the north. And right there in between is Samaria. Which on a map is no problem. Hey, the shortest distance between two places, straight line. The problem there is Samaria is unclean for the Jewish heart and mind. Samaria is full of Samaritans. And Jews consider them unclean. We talked a pretty good bit last week about why that's the case. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, going all the way back to 2 Kings chapter 17, where God in judgment on his people sent the Assyrian army to raid, right? To raid the area, the ten tribes of Israel. And the Assyrian king deported a good portion of the Jewish people out of the region. That's, that's just that's smart. Get, get them out of the area. Why? So they don't, kind of reignite their patriotism and rise up to try to revolt. So just kind of send a bunch out, and we'll send a bunch of these foreigners back in here, and just, it's not a chance for them to kind of re-engage in the battle. The Israelites who remained in the land were now neighbors with these foreigners who came in, and, and over time, built relationships, they married, they had children. And what used to be the, pe- the land of the people of God now is a mixing and a mingling. It used to be devoted to the, or at least theoretically, devoted to the true worship of the one true God. But now foreigners and their religions have been brought in together. And so as these groups, the Jews and these foreigners are, are, are marrying and having children, well, this is how I was raised. No, this is how I was raised. Well, it's just kind of put them together. It's creating a whole just syncretistic religious system. And so for the true Jew, they look at the Samaritan as a mixed breed, as unfaithful to God, as dirty. And the bitterness and the hatred ran deep between the Jews and the Samaritans. So much so that when it, as it was common to travel from Judea to the south and Galilee to the north with Samaria in the middle, the hatred ran so deep. The Jews went around. Just avoid it altogether. But what did Jesus do? We saw this last week. He walked directly straight into Samaria, right smack dab into it. And went to Jacob's well, a very historic place in the history of Israel, and sat down at Jacob's well. And there was a woman there, a Samaritan woman, that Jesus immediately began to talk to. Now, again, when we read this in the year 2019, we're not just naturally shocked when we read that. I doubt any of you, when I was reading the text, or if you've read it previous to this, found yourself horrified by what Jesus was doing. But in Jesus' day, it would have been on a couple of different levels. Number one, as we've already seen, this woman's a a Samaritan. So it would have been horrific for Jesus to be seen sitting with this Samaritan. Secondly, she was a woman. And in those days, devout Jews did not openly converse with women. That was the culture. There's two massive levels that Jesus would have been perceived and it would have been horrifying. What Jesus was seeing doing here. But if those weren't enough, there was a third. This woman was incredibly immoral. She was a Samaritan. She was a woman. And she was an immoral woman. The story goes on to tell us she's had five husbands. And she's working on number six presently. This is a woman with five husbands. She's living with one now who's not her husband. And this is, probably plays into why she is going to Jacob's well at the sixth hour. Somebody remind me, what, what time of day is the sixth hour? High noon. There's a reason nobody else is there. It's hard work to carry those pitchers and then to draw the water. It's suicidal. The heat in the area to go at how, why in the world is she doing it because there's a stigmatism she's been ostracized this is a woman who's been humiliated who's ashamed who's who's been through all kinds of traumatic problems and it's best just to avoid all the other women she goes at the time she knows no one's going to be there she is on every front altogether unworthy Now, let me again just reference what John has been saying in John 1 through 3. God so loved the world, not the people of the world. Again, I'm not saying he doesn't love the people. I'm saying that's not what John's intention is. The world in John's mind has to do with the realm of creation that is in rebellion against its creator. A world that has sinned against Him. A world that has no interest in Him. A world that has, is full of sin and shame. Even if it doesn't own up to it. Because it's sinned against God. It's one thing to read that on a billboard. For God so loved the world. Even though most people have no concept of really what it means. But here it's driven home. To this Immoral Samaritan woman. Jesus, who goes back to go back to last Sunday's message, the God man, is found sitting at Jacob's well talking to her. What John is driving home here is not a method for evangelism. Though they're takeaways. He's not telling us how to break down cultural boundaries. Though with wisdom, maybe you can work through some of those issues. What he's communicating here, what he's illustrating here, is that this Jesus who I've been telling you is the Savior of a people, of a, a human race that hates Him. So much so, He goes to them. He goes straight through Samaria. He comes right into this world that hates Him, born in a manger. He comes right up to you. And by grace unveils himself, unveils you, and points you to himself as God's gracious, loving, merciful salvation from what you deserve. The point being made here is not, oh, that poor Samaritan woman. Oh, that poor woman. Nobody wants to be around her. She feels so alienated. She's a picture of you and I, the dark world in rebellion, full of sin. We've done wrong. And she's going about her sinful life. And like Paul on the road to Damascus, there she meets God. There she meets a Savior. Nothing new here, is it? That's exactly what John has been playing out for us. But he's simply illustrating or displaying, if you will, this is who Jesus is. Sinner, you who are like the Samaritan woman. And we all are before the face of God. Outsiders, immoral. Jesus is the Savior. Not just for the Samaritan woman. The story expands as the story develops. We read all the way through it. We come to see that not only is Jesus conversed with this Samaritan woman, because the Samaritan woman is not alone in her need for Christ, for a Savior. But Christ also converses with a multitude of Samaritans from her own hometown. They come to Jesus after she goes back home and says, you got to come see this guy. He He knows things about me nobody can know. Things I'm humiliated for anybody, he knows. And so they come and they meet him on the basis of what the Samaritan woman told them about him. And they come, they compel him to stay for a little while longer. The text tells us he stays for two days. And after those two days, John tells us that the Samaritan people said to the Samaritan woman, verse 42... It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. Isn't that John's whole purpose in writing? I write these things that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and live upon these things. Here it is. They've encountered this Savior themselves. It's no longer because of what you, Samaritan woman, said that we believe. For we have heard ourselves and we know This is indeed, what? What does it say? The Savior of the world. That's what this story is about. It's not new. John's been telling us this all along. So why repeat himself? To give us visual depiction, illustration that you, like I, might believe. We are the dark world. We are the world. I'm just think, thinking of that song right now, the old 80s song, We Are the World. And we are the people. But that's nothing to sing about. We are the world that hates God by nature. And Jesus is God's gift to us to save us, to rescue us. Out of that, unto himself. Jesus is the answer. Every problem, and I I think I'm far enough along in ministry and in my own process of sanctification, of working out things, every problem in your life, it finds its root in sin. Everyone. You may need to wrestle through some of that a little bit to find it, but everything finds its root in sin. And Jesus has come, and he is sufficient for that every sin, and therefore for everything that sin produces. It's almost like John is saying, I've told you who Jesus is. Are you listening? Are you still trying to find help somewhere else in something else? Are you trying to fix your own problems? Are you trying to find somebody or something or some medication or some counsel or some wisdom to try to fix what's wrong? Are you trying to find a specialist who can specialize in whatever the season of life you're in? That's only dealing with the the fruit You've got to get down to the root of the problem. There's a sin problem, a sin of hatred against God, rebellion against Him. We've not been who He created us to be. We've not done what He made us to do. And therefore, life is chaotic. But Christ is the Savior, the sufficient one. For all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, doesn't matter what the culture doesn't matter what the context. It doesn't matter what the problem. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is always the answer. And for you and I as the church, that's our message. There's nothing else to preach. As you go back out and scatter out into the world with friends and family, and they have their own problems and struggles, there's no other message to give. There's no other specialist to send somebody to, unless that specialist is pointing them to Jesus. That's the first picture we see here, Jesus, the Savior of the world. Number two, Jesus offers living water. The second theme we see here is a theme of water. If you take the time to go back and read John chapter 4, but take a few extra minutes And begin in John chapter 1, verse 1, and just read all the way through the Samaritan woman, you'll find he's been talking about water. This is not the first time. The imagery runs all throughout John's gospel. Again, as I said a few minutes ago, we saw it in Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. We saw it in chapter 2 with John the Baptist's baptism. John the Baptist baptizes with water. By contrast, Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. What's the difference? What does the water symbolize? The water doesn't do anything. It symbolizes something. Washing. Purification. A cleansing. John's baptism symbol- with water symbolizes washing, cleansing, purification from sins. Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit accomplishes it, it actually cleanses. Jesus, in the first miracle he did in John chapter 2, turns what into wine? Water. And what's the symbolism there? The water in the six clay pots. What were those clay pots there for? They were there for purification. Before you enter into the feast... Those clay pots there, according to the Jewish tradition, were set for purification. To wash yourself. So you don't go and partake of the feast spiritually filthy. And if you remember back to that sermon we preached, it's not by accident. Among any number of things Jesus could have used to put water in and turn it into wine, he picked those six clay pots, which were clearly designated for the purpose of purification. They symbolized purification. They didn't accomplish it. So where does this purification come from? It's from Jesus. Now John has been telling us this. In the stories and in the episodes and in the, the things where water shows up, Purification is necessary. And Jesus is that. And now Jesus comes in not to give new information, just simply in this encounter with the Samaritan woman to communicate to the spiritual woman, or to the Samaritan woman, and to you and I what John has already been saying. Water, the water that you need, that I need, comes through Him. Jesus comes in this episode and asks this Samaritan woman for a drink. He was thirsty, speaking of his humanity, right? We talked about last week, Jesus' deity and humanity simultaneously in this thing. He comes and asks, he's thirsty, he didn't have the proper tools to draw out water. And so the woman, surprised by his request, one, she's a Samaritan and she's a woman, She doesn't know that he knows her immorality, but those two things enough make this shocking and horrifying to her. She responds, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, verse 9? And Jesus, again, knowing that he's been sent by the Father for a very specific purpose. He's been sent by the Father to lay claim to this woman a claim which was established before the foundation of the world, Jesus gets right to the point. Verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now the woman, of course, like many of us, doesn't get what Jesus is getting at, right? I mean, she's still thinking of water. She's still thinking literally of the water. And so she responds in verse 11. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So you can kind of see her hesitancy. She's a little resistant, right? She's kind of, she's not comfortable, it seems like. But this, what Jesus is here doing is the will of the Father. He's not just going to up and say, well, let me wipe my feet off here and keep moving. Jesus knows something that you and I often don't know. This woman belongs to the Father. And he's here accomplishing this great salvation. So instead of giving up, even in the midst of her confusion, he presses further in verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, this water from this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, we know something that she still doesn't get. He's not talking about literal water. He's talking about what John the Baptist was baptizing with. He's talking about what the clay pots and the water to wine symbolized. He's talking about purification of sins. He's talking about this woman has a need deep in her soul that she doesn't know he knows about, but he knows about. And he is laying claim upon her saying, I'm the one who can take care of your every struggle, your every problem, what separates you from God, and I can give you eternal life with Him. That's what he's getting at. A spring of living water that wells up to eternal life. He's talking about what only he can do through his life, death, resurrection, and the work of the Holy Spirit upon her heart. This woman is obviously, as we would all be, still just confused. I mean, she's just not getting it. Everything just seems off about this scenario. Why he's talking to her, why he's there in the first place, why he's rambling on about this living water when I'm, I'm being very practical. I mean, it's just... And it's almost like in verse 15, she's kind of getting smart-aleck with him, <laughs> Almost. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Sure, man. <laughs> man, if you can give me water, that I don't have to come here again. And I mean, you have no idea how problematic this whole thing is. If you can give me water, man, do it so that I never have to come here again. But again, she doesn't understand. She's thinking in an earthly way, can't yet grasp the truths that Jesus is communicating. And so, as we come to verse 15, you find a woman in darkness. You find a woman who has been communicated to by Christ Himself who He is and what He can do. And she's in darkness. She doesn't get it, she doesn't understand. Jesus is the living water. He offers living water. But she doesn't get it. Stay with me. She's blind. She's hard-hearted. She can't hear what Jesus is saying. She can hear his words spiritually. She can't hear. And it's not like exactly what we see in the world around us. It's probably, it is your testimony prior to that moment where God opened your ears to hear his gospel for the first time. Even if your physical ears had heard it countless times, there was a point where your spiritual ears were open to hear it and it made sense. And it's like, holy cow, what? it's almost like I'm hearing this for the first time. Now, I've heard it countless times, but it's having an effect upon me. I mean, it's like I'm, I'm, I'm really getting it for the first time. Well, she's not there yet. And so Christ's message to her sounds funky. It sounds strange. Her mind can't think anything other than the physical. She can't think anything other than the worldly ways. What Jesus is saying to her sounds like foolishness. Isn't that what Paul says the gospel sounds like to the unbeliever? I mean, put yourself in this woman's shoes and listen to what Jesus is saying to her. It sounds like foolishness. It sounds like jibber-jabber. It sounds like he's making no sense whatsoever. I'll play along. Fine. If you can give me water, give it to me, buddy. Save me a whole lot of heartache. She can't get it. Despite the fact Jesus is laying out for her what we see clearly. He is purification for sins. His life, his death, his resurrection, and the work of the Spirit of Christ upon the soul. We see that clearly. Why can't she? She's in darkness. Isn't that what John has already told us about the world? The world's in darkness. Brings us to the third thing this morning. Notice what Jesus does with this hard-hearted worldly unbelieving can't get it doesn't get it it's all foolishness to me notice what jesus does exactly what john has told us going back to john chapter one in him was light and the light was the life of life was the light of men the light Shines in the darkness. That's the third thing here. Jesus shines light into the darkness. Nothing new. It's exactly what John's been telling us extensively. But that you and I might believe beyond just theological truth. Here's Jesus illustrating it Jesus shines light. Into the darkness of her soul. John's been telling us. Christ is the light of the world. And as the light. He's able to shine into the darkness. And to drive out the darkness. And so verse 16. Here comes the light. Shining into the darkness. Go call your husband. (laughs) Go call your husband. And tell him to come here. Contextually. It doesn't fit, does it? It's like, where did this come from? It's Jesus revealing what John's been telling us. Her problem is one of darkness. And so Jesus is about to show her. He's about to do what only he can do. He's going to shine the light on what the real problem is. She responded, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right. You're right. I know you don't have a husband. But you've had five husbands. And you're living with a fellow right now who's not your husband. What you've said, it's true. What's Jesus doing here? He's showing what John has been telling. Jesus knows all things, his omniscience. You remember when Jesus was going about and the crowds were following him saying, we believe, John chapter 2, 23, 24, and 25, and Jesus did not give himself to them. Why? Because he knew what was in their hearts. It's like, wow, what does that even look like? Glad you asked, John says. Let me tell you a story about the Samaritan woman. Let me show you what it looks like for the king of kings to know what's in someone's heart. Bring your husband. I don't have a husband. I know you don't have a husband. I know you've had five husbands and I know you're living with a guy. And she is what? (sighs) Not unlike on that day when many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Give me a place in your kingdom. I know what was in your heart. You didn't know me. I didn't know you. Depart. I- he knows. And he knows this woman here. And she's in shock. What's Jesus revealing? His omniscience, yes, but he is the light that shines in the darkness. This woman has come not under the cover of darkness like Nicodemus. I mean, she's come at high noon, but even in that, she's come under the cover of darkness, right? She has strategically come at a time where no one else is around, where no one, she won't have to rub shoulders with anybody. She wants to avoid everyone. And she comes in contact with Jesus. Well, I was hoping no one would be here, but this is a foreigner. He's not going to know me. I feel comfortable in this. <laughs> And then Jesus reveals himself to her to be the light of the world. The true light, John says in John chapter 1, which gives light to everyone. Christ broke through her darkness, didn't he? We still got a ways to go on the story. The best is still to come. But what John is showing us in this episode with the Samaritan woman, is not how bad she is, how shameful she is, her plight in life. He's using her as the backdrop to retell the story he's been telling us, that we would know and believe without a shadow of a doubt Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus is the one who gives living water. And we're a bunch of thirsty people. We're a bunch of people who have drank from the fountain of the world this week. More toys, more money, more prestige, more of this, more of that, more, 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 more. And it never satisfies. John here with the Samaritan woman is communicating to her and to us. Christ is the one that satisfies Christ and Christ alone. And that Christ is the light of the world. The true light. Christ is able to break through the darkness. The darkness cannot restrain him. It cannot hold him back. Christ can break through the darkest of the sin-sick soul. That's exactly what he's doing here with the Samaritan woman. And we will have more work to do next week. But notice she has no choice but to respond in verse 19. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. All of a sudden now, things are beginning to open up, the scales are falling off. And she's been beginning to see what John is so desperately trying to get you and I to see that Jesus is not just a historical figure, he's not just a religious figure, he's not just the topic of your Sunday school class or of your book you're reading or of the sermons we're preaching. Christ is everything. And she, like these Samaritan groups, will respond by grace to Jesus. I think John preserves these things for us simply to say this. What you see Jesus doing with the Samaritan woman, he works the same way today. He's still doing the same thing today. He's still shining his light into the darkness, into the darkness of your soul, into the darkness of my soul, through the Holy Spirit, that through the ministry of the Word in your private life, in corporate life. Christ is still doing this, what he's doing in the Samaritan's life. He should be doing it now in your life and mine. He's drawing people to Himself. Addressing their sin. Addressing what He knows. Exposing. You think you've gotten away with it. You haven't. Here it is. I'm the true light. I'm showing it before the face of God. It's exposed. Repent. Repent. can be a painful process. I've read um, certain liberal commentators on this who talk about how cruel it was of Jesus to go and hone in on this woman's weakness, to hone in on her pain, to go and to to bring to light something. Now, obviously, it was a deep hurt. Why would you do this? Just kind of understand. Don't talk about it. That's the most loving thing in the world he could do is to go and rip it open as the God-man, he knows, but he also understands. He's in his he flesh. To rip it open and say, here's what it is. And here I am, the Savior. I can give you living water. And I, can sh- I do shine the light into the darkness. Is there something in you? Something in your life presently? Something from your past? that the light is shining today calling you to repent of. What is that subject? What is that thing? Perhaps the Holy Spirit is moving upon your heart today to turn from all else, to confess, to repent, to follow Jesus as the Savior, the living water, the true light of the world, as the true temple, the story's beautiful. Not because it's a story of Jesus and this poor Samaritan woman. It's beautiful because it's showing us more of the glory of Christ. It's illustrating who Christ is and what he did and what he's doing still. Now. He's still Engaging this world that hates Him. He's still the Savior. Now with every moment of every day, the time draws nigh. We've not long ago been through the book of Revelation. That book is closing. But for now, it's the season of grace. Now, what we see Him doing with the Samaritan woman, He's still doing today. And if you hear his voice, only a fool would turn away. He's still offering himself as living water. Whatever your sin, you can't fix it. Whatever's done is done. I was talking to somebody this week. I mean, just about the, you can't put, what, how's the old saying going? Toothpaste back into the tube. You just, you can't do it. What's done is done. That's not intended to excuse it. Where you've sinned, drink from the living water that Christ brings. Himself, through the Holy Spirit, His life, death, and resurrection, the purification, the cleansing. Drink from that fountain. And just like He was doing with the Samaritan woman, He's still breaking through hardened, unrepentant hearts. If you're here this morning and maybe you for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you've lived a religious life, a church-going life. But then you hear messages like this and you know, I just don't take God seriously. I don't take sin seriously. I've never taken Christ seriously. I mean, I'm I'm interested in Jesus. I know a lot about Jesus, but I've never taken this seriously. Then fall on your knees and beg. Beg God to break through your hardened heart like we see him doing with the Samaritan woman, like we see him do it with Saul on the road to Damascus. Beg, ask God to do what only he can do while he still does it.